built into human beings is a desire to understand and have a sense of how we fit into this universe. In, in every human heart, we, we got we to gotta know how, how does it work? How did this universe come to be? And how do we fit in? What, what was man made for? I, I made the argument last week that, that we're so intent on that, even people that don't believe in God, they have some sense that there, there must be more to the universe than just molecules bouncing off each other. There, there has to be something more going on in our heads than just neurons firing. There must be something real. And, and people are yearning to do that. And throughout time, people have tried to figure that out. And so one way they've done that, the, the, what they're trying to figure out is, how did the world or the universe come to be? And what were humans, mankind, what was mankind made for? For what purpose? In Genesis 1 and 2, we get God's answer to that. But I think we understand God's answer better in, when we understand what were the alternatives that they were saying in ancient times. So when the Bible was written and the people were talking about what, what were they saying then about how the world came to be? How, what was the Bible challenging the alternate views of the world? And so one of the creation narratives of the Mesopotamian world is called the Enuma Elish. And there, this is from the Sumerian and the Babylonian, actually I think this falls under Babylonian, the god Marduk formed the world by slaying a dragon, Tiamat, and used half the body to form the earth and the other half to form the skies above. And that is the story that the Babylonians would have talked about and the Mesopotamians about how how the world came to be. In the Greek myths, Hesiod talks about Gaia, which is kind of similar to Earth. Uh, it's kind of the mother, Earth, Earth as a mother goddess. And Gaia is this ultimate mother goddess that gives birth to the, the sky, Uranus. It gives birth and then... Uranus and the sky together give birth to all the other god, gods and goddesses that there is. So the world comes to be. The cosmos is formed through either a warrior god or a mother goddess. And those were oftentimes the stories that were told in the time the Bible formed. And then when you think about the other question, how did mankind come to be? The, the Mesopotamian myth talks about how Mankind was made because the gods did not like to farm. It was a lot of work to do all the agricultural and the farming. And so, and they needed food, the, the gods in the ancient world. And so they created human beings to do the grunt work. And so that's, human beings were made to serve gods and to feed them, to bring their sacrifices so that the gods would not go hungry. And when the human beings got too numerous because they, they multiplied in number and they, they got too loud and annoying, the gods sent a flood to try to wipe them out. Those are the stories that the surrounding peoples were telling when Israel came to be. 
Genesis 1 and 2 was written to teach what God says about how did mankind, or what was the, how did the universe come to be and what was mankind made for? And I want to highlight five truths that come out of Genesis 1 and 2 that we see in contrast to these other ancient stories. The first one is that God is the creator of everything we see. In other cultures, you'd have like, well, you'd have the God of the ocean, Poseidon, or the God of this, or the God of that. No, God, God Almighty is the God of everything. He's the, he's the one who made it all. Nothing in this universe preexisted God himself. Starts off by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Meaning, God had already been there before the heavens and the earth. God did not emerge from chaos. He brought the universe into being, and then it was by nature chaos, but then he brought order to it. If you read Genesis 1, you see the, the earth was without form and void. It was chaotic as it was just made, and God throughout Genesis brings it into an orderly form. God is the creator of everything we see. The second truth that we see is there's only one God Almighty who rules over all. This God is above, transcendent, stands outside the visible universe. Unlike the pagan images of competing gods, he is but one God. And so I, Genesis 1 and 2, you get a sense of this, what this God is like. He is all-powerful. He, he's kind of an architect and an artist at the same time. Like he, he forms things. There's an order to the way he does the, the days of creation. And yet it's not just about order. There's also beauty involved in everything that is in filling the sky. And you look at the world. We went out to the Grand Canyon this, this summer. It took the family. Been there before, but it's just such a reminder. We live in an amazing world. God did not have to make it that way. He could have made it very, you know, similar all throughout. But the American Southwest and upstate New York are about as different as you can get as far as, you know, they both have mountains, but the mountains look so different. God loves to, to bring in the, the variety and the beauty, and he did that. The one God Almighty made a diverse and, and beautiful world. The third truth about God. When God created this world, he did it by his word. He commanded, and it came to be. He brought order and form through, through simply saying, saying it. And God said, and it, so it came to be. This is, think of the contrast this is with the pagan imagery that I cited. Where there, you create the world through either your sword or through sex. By mating and having giving birth. This is a God who, who can do that simply by his word. It highlights his power, but also seems to give some indication of how, how, how language, how words play a part in God's communication and, and God's nature. A fourth truth in Genesis 1 and 2 that you would encounter as you read through this. Humanity Mankind is the centerpiece of creation, not an afterthought. When on the end of the sixth day, it says that God made male and human beings. He made them in his image. Male and female together are made in his image. And it, it's the culmination of what he was doing. 
his goal was to create these, these creatures who were made on the same day as the, the beasts, right? Mankind was made on the same day as all the other animals. So there is an animal aspect to us. We have physical bodies. We have flesh and blood. We are like the animals in certain ways, and yet we are completely different than the animals in another way. We are in the image of God, so we're able to relate to and connect to God. We were made to know and be known by God. We are made in God's image. God seems to be, that seems to be the goal of everything he's about doing. So, in the other stories, usually it's, it's subcontracted out. In fact, it's not the, the ruling God that made humanity. Usually it's some other subset that, that did it. And humanity seems to be an afterthought or a mistake. And it's, it's regretted. But God made people, and it says when he was done, it was very good. A fifth truth you'll see in Genesis 1 and 2. God made man, both male and female, to rule as his representatives on earth. They're not there to, to grow food so the gods don't have to. In fact, they're given dominion. God says, I, I, I give to you this world. Go, go bring order to it. God's way of bringing order to this world is to empower these images, these creatures then to, to multiply and bring the world into submission. And God was going to teach us how. It wasn't going to be something we did apart from him. It was something we did with him. Eden is the training ground that God was going to use to to train. He started with Adam and Eve, train them how to, to organize the world and bring order to the, to the chaos of everything. Next week, we'll talk about how that failed and, and get into that, that story. So those are five truths, I believe, that are highlighted, especially when you compare Genesis to the stories that were circulating in the time in the ancient world. What about our time? We don't really believe that Mother Gaia gave birth to the rest of the universe or anything. We don't believe that a dragon was slain and that's how you form. You know, we, we have a whole different story. But we do kind of have our own alternative creation story. Back in the 60s, there was a show called Cosmos. Carl Sagan. Uh, was the the highlight of it. And his line was this, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Doesn't that sound a bit religious? It's a faith claim that the universe is eternal. Um, He goes on to say, I'll read this whole quote, says, our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if in a distant memory of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. Interesting. The, The religious feeling that he's applying to the scientific story of of how the universe came to be. Now, Sagan kind of says the universe was eternal. It always was. Actually, the, the, creation, the modern creation story has kind of changed a bit in that they now 
believed that the universe had a beginning. So Lawrence Krauss is a physicist, and he wrote a book called A Universe from Nothing. And his contention is the universe just sprung into existence on its own. It just sort of emerged um, out, of the, out of the blue in, in the beginning with the great expansion of the Big, big Bang. So that's the updated version of what modern science now tells us. That this universe then grew and expanded, and everything was just right about it so that stars could form, and the stars then could, could form supernova, which created the metals and the, all the things that we have. And it, it did that in just the right way that planets could form around solar systems and then on one particular planet known that kind of had a Goldilocks, it was just the right distance from the sun, so the temperature was just right. It just happened to be that way that, that you could have liquid water. And in that liquid water in a warm little pond, somehow a, a huge aggregation of chemicals, organic chemicals, were able to, to form in such a way that they self-organized and formed the first living cell. If you want something I, I think is fascinating, if you're at all scientifically inclined, look up James Tours. He's an organic chemist, chemist expert, nanotechnology. He creates nanotechnology. He talks about what, what would it actually take for that first cell to, to form out of just organic chemicals. And Tours would say, there's no way it's happening on its own. That's happening purely by random chance. That, that is impossible. But in the modern scientific story, that's, that's what they say. It, it all came together, and then once you had a modern cell, the this, this cell, you would have natural selection, would then be able to produce the diversity of life that we see. And so all throughout the world, everything just happened by these, these natural means. No divine designer was needed. And then, out of one particular species of ape, one of them stood upright, somehow enabling their brain to form in a way that they were able then to use tools. And, and before you know it, they had some idea that they had some sense of consciousness and an eternal soul, even though really it's just neurons firing in their brain. So, so that's a broad synopsis of, of the story that science would say about how the world came to be and how... how, how humans came to be formed. How do we think about that story? How do modern Christians, I know in this room we have engineers, we have a lot of people who, who would say they're scientists. Do we, do we look at the scientific story and say, yeah? Or do we, do we have questions? <laughs> I have Christian friends on completely polar opposite sides of this. Uh, I have Christian friends who believe in trust in God's word, and they're thoughtful and rational people, and some think that science is all wrong, that, that they, they completely have the story botched, that the, that the universe is very young, it's 10,000 years or even less, and that most of what we see was formed by the great flood. I have friends... Christians who love Jesus and believe in God's word and are faithful believers and are rational, thoughtful people who believe that science pretty much has the story right. 
And they, they would follow that, that sequence and think the, science has the right description. The only thing that they would say science misses is that God was behind it all. God was the, the one that brought about all the coincidences. So that view would be called theistic evolution. That the universe formed, God was behind it, but God did not show his hand. The other I described would be where, where science has it all wrong would be called young earth creationism. I'll tell you this, friends. I am somewhere in the middle of that. I, I have my own views. You probably have your own views. I, I fall somewhere in the middle. I have probably read more books on this issue than just about any other. Um, I was a physics major. I was thinking about going into stellar dynamics. I, I actually had applied to grad schools. I, I'll, I'll say this that might throw some of you off. I believe the Big Bang happened. I, I remember doing it in physics class. Moreover, I think the Big Bang is the best evidence we have that, that there is a God. Because the Big Bang says definitively there was a beginning. And if there was a beginning, there has to have been a beginner. Um, and so, even more, I think the evidence that you follow from physics and biology points to the fact that there has to have been a God who, who put it all together. I think many materialist scientists are blinded by a commitment to a God-free universe, a materialistic universe. They, they start with that premise. There is no God, and, and so then they, they're unable to, to interpret the, the data of science correctly because they, they start with their assumption, and so they rule out God from the beginning, and so they just see everything then as a bunch of fortunate accidents or random events when I think the evidence points to an intelligent designer. So that's probably enough science for most of you. And if I will do some more stuff on this on one of my side issues. If For some of you, you're really into this. Others of you, like, please get on to the, the other stuff. Um, you, you already lost me. You lost me at materialistic. I, you know, all this stuff. Here, here's, my, here's, here's how I'm going to wrap it up. Christians can disagree on the how of creation and the how long of creation. How, long, how did God do it and how long did it take? Because Christians can disagree on that. What the Bible is intent on declaring is the who of creation. What was the God like who brought it all into being? He is one God, not many. He is the God who exists apart from creation, but is active in it by his Holy Spirit. He is a God so powerful he can create by his, his, his word alone. He is a God intent on making creatures in his image so he can know them and be known by them. He is not a distant God, but one who formed us himself and breathed life into us. That's what God wants you to, to clearly hear out of Genesis 1 and 2 as you read that. Moreover, we've talked about how creation fell. When we were, like we failed at, at doing as God wanted to. And we'll get more into that story. But God did not give up on us when we failed to live up to what he wanted to do. He wanted to use human beings to bring order and harmony to this, this new creation. The rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 
onward is God's plan to redeem and restore, redeem people and restore creation. The world is broken. God has a plan to fix it. And along with it to fix us. That's what you're going to read as we go through the Bible story. God's great plan to set it all right. Let me read an extended passage from Romans 8 that talks about, because we're right in the middle of the story still. God, the, 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 the plan has started to be worked through, but we've yet to see its complete fulfillment. That's what Romans 8 says. So Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What does that mean? God is going to fix us, the redemption of our bodies. We will see a glorious time yet in the future with the resurrection um, and the restoration of creation. And God gives us a picture of what that might be. We can't imagine it because it's beyond us. But I talked about Eden being a training ground. It was a small, protected environment for the one man and one woman who as they would tend the garden, would learn how to rule as God intended. He put them there, and he, he formed the man, and then later formed the woman, so that they could learn how to, to, to do this. But the, the Garden of Eden was not the end of the story. It was only the beginning. I have a quick illustration. So Derek Zoolander is not too bright but he wants to build a school. Um, he calls it a center for kids who can't read good and who want to learn to do other good stuff too. And so he has someone who's going to build the movie Zoolander, who's going to build him the school, and he, he's you know moved the project forward. So they the guy presents to Derek a model of the school that you know has you know says, behold, this is what we're going to do, and Derek sees this this model and says what is this a school for ants how can we teach kids to read if they can't even fit inside the building in other words he thought the model was the real thing right he had the the plan was to build a full-size school but he the, the model was only just the beginning likewise eden was not the end of the story it's the it was the beginning. If, if we would have not fallen, God probably would have found some, would have worked through that to expand Eden throughout the whole earth. But what we see at the end of the Bible is the final fulfillment after the redemption and the restoration of creation. And so in Revelation 22, what we see is a new Eden, an Eden that's been made complete. And while original Eden was probably fairly small enough for two people, this new Eden is immense. It gives the dimensions as 12,000 stadia 
high, long, and wide. Now, I looked that up. So 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles wide, high, and long. So how far would you get if you suddenly drove 1,400 miles to the west? You'd get to about Kansas, right? And how far would you get if you drove 1,400 miles to the south? You'd probably get to at least Florida, if not the tip of Florida. So this city, this garden city that God's going to create, is the size of the western half of the United States, if, just to give you an image. And, and that's just the, the central part of the city. And there's all these things in, in Eden that, that compare with what, you would, what we read, what you'd read in Genesis 1 and 2. It talks about rivers in Eden. Well, in Revelation, it says the river flows from the throne of God, that from the center. So the, the river is the key part of it. It talks about precious minerals. If you read in Genesis 2, it talks about Eden. There's these precious min- min- minerals. The, the city in Revelation is made of 12 different uh, precious stones are you know, used in different parts of the city. And you could go through and find all of these. And so our Christian ed, uh, Becky, kind of mentioned one of them today at our meeting in there. In Rev- and Genesis, there is a tree of life. In Revelation, there's not just one. It says the tree of life lines this great river. So all along the river, there's these trees where you can get the, the fruit that will enable you to, to live forever and ever. And the, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So I thought about making a chart of all the comparisons between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. I thought, oh man, that's going to be a lot of work. I thought, maybe it'd be better if I let you do it yourself. So what I want you to do this week, read both. It's two chapters on each each end. See how many parallels you can find. How many things mentioned in Genesis that show up in a similar way in the last two books of the Bible. God has an incredible plan to redeem broken, sinful people. He's already brought about the, the, the main part of it when Jesus gave his life on the cross to reclaim us as sons and daughters of God. God has a plan to fix creation. There's lots of worries about how our world is going, our physical world, our environment. God has a plan to fix it. What should be our response to this amazing truth that God created this great world we live in, a world of beauty, And that God has a plan to set things right, to fix what is broken within it. The right response is to worship, is to praise. Invite the worship team to come on up. Let's praise God for for what he's about doing. And as we study and read, may your hearts just see and be a part of what God has about. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that when we walked away from you, You did not give up on us, but that you've been at work and that you still are at work to set things right. And that one day we will see the full culmination of all that you have planned as we we live in 
in bodies that have been fixed and set right, as we live in a world that's been fixed and set right. Lord, we await the day in hope and in faith. Amen.